So I'm just thinking this week um, a lot about the labels that we stick on people. I don't know if you notice that, but we tend to do that. I think most of us do it with almost everybody, whether we realize it or not. We label them. We decide who they are and what they're like and all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, um, I, I think it gets difficult when we label people to ever let them change the label. And I think sometimes we become a little sensitive, a little concerned about how people label us, uh, how people think of us. I really, that's actually really uh, been driven home with me over the last week. Uh, I realized that actually I am kind of sensitive to um, the labels that maybe people put on me, even though I don't know for sure that they do or they don't. And it it came out kind of in the form of um, just the whole... Uh, leg thing, and so it was, uh, I think I shared with you, I guess it was eight days ago that I ended up at the doctor's office and um, found out that I had stress fractures in both legs, and so just through some negotiating with my doctor, who's a good friend of ours, uh, you know, we kind of played the, so she was the doctor and said, I think you should get casts, and I was the, I'm her pastor, and I said, well, I don't think that's a good spiritual plan, and so anyways, we kind of worked that through. I I speak a lot boldly now. I speak bolder in this service because she was in the last one, so I kind of spoke more carefully in the last one, but I'll just tell you, so we negotiated, and anyways, we came up with this half-baked plan, like I'll wear this dumb boot, and and I got two boots, so I just, but I can't wear one on both feet at the same time. I can barely walk when I don't have them. So I kind of switch off and I, you know, I wear it on here for a while, I wear it on here for a while. And then her plan was that I would go back this Wednesday and they'd take more x-rays and then she said, I'd know if you're cheating or not. And if you're cheating, we're putting casts on. And if you're not, then well, good for you. Um, and so anyways, I'm going on a Wednesday, but in the meantime, I'm trying to be good and I'm trying to stay in the boot. And, you know, but it, so the boot like really, really slows me down. Like, stairs are ridiculous. And I, somebody told me you have an elevator, but I don't know where it is. Uh, I, I use the stairs, and that's, where the, that's what I'm sticking to. But actually, the, the really bothersome situation for me this week is I went to Target on Thursday, and I usually go to Target on Thursdays and do shopping for the family, and I just pick up some stuff. And so I'm like, I'm going to go anyways. I don't care. And so I go uh, to Target. And so here's what I really noticed. Like, this is... I never thought about this. This is weird to me. It always bothers me when I go to Target and I like to park like far away from the front doors just because, well, there's several reasons why. Um, One is just though because then you can walk more and that's a cool thing. So anyways, but I, I didn't do that this time. I parked closer and I always find like at Target, everyone's in such a hurry when they're in the parking lot at Target, no one can stop for you when you need to cross. So you wait and you wait and you wait until people are done driving by. I discovered this week there's something more annoying than people who won't stop for you in the Target parking lot. And that is everybody who stops for you in the parking lot. Like everybody, it's so annoying. So like I get out of my car and I start hobbling through the parking lot and like everyone's stopping, no, go. I'm like, no, no, you you go, no, you go. I don't want to go because it takes me like five minutes just to cross, you know, the parking lot and they'll be sitting there going, come on, come on, come on. So I'm like, no, you go, you go. So then you go, and then, you know, it's super annoying. And then as you're walking in the front doors, oh my gosh, I'm walking into the front doors. It's happened twice now. And you can see somebody who's working out front, and they're greeting, and God bless them, they mean well, but they start going to get an electric cart for me. I don't want an electric cart, right? I don't want to be seen in an electric cart, and, and I don't, because somebody will have a phone, and they'll post it on Facebook, and I'll feel just, I, so I'm, I'm, 
I'm proud, I guess. And so anyways, this lady's like getting this cart for me. And I'm like, and then I'm like, I can't use it. It might have a kickstand and then it'll all be messed up, right? And so I'm like, no, I don't want to. So I'm walking slowly towards and she's got a smiling face with the cart. And I'm like, no. And she's like, come on, no, come on, no. I get close, honey, come on, get in the cart. No, I don't want to, come on, get in the cart. No, I don't, <laughs> like, I don't know how to say no, I'm not getting in that cart, you know? Okay, all right, have you had your medication? No, just leave me alone. So, you know. Like, and then you're like walking. So I'm like walking through Target. Oh my goodness. And I, and then, you know, the people who walk by and look at you like, oh, I wonder what he did. You know, poor guy. I wonder if he'll survive. Like just the pity and the, oh, he looks like a needy person. I'll bet he's like soaking his company for workman comp, you know, probably something like, I'm just having all these going through it. I'm just feeling like, oh, people are slapping all these labels on me. And I, I hate it. I mean, I realize they're probably not. I'm probably just proud. But, and then I got an email from a friend of mine this week and he's super funny. I know he was joking but in his email, he, he had all this stuff and then he closed it with this. He said, but I'm really praying for you because I'm afraid you're going to get fat and lazy. And I was kind of like, oh, what? Like, and then I, I know he's joking and then I'm like, ah, you know, I'm a, I'm, I might. I'm kind of concerned about that, you know? And I realized, like, I don't like... I'm really concerned about what people think about me, apparently more than I thought, because I realized we, we put a lot of labels on people. We label people all day long. That person's smart. That person's not smart. That person's a glutton. That person's like, you know, we just go popular, smart, geek, whatever. And it made me think, like, what if you could choose the label that people put on you? Like, what if you just got to choose what people labeled you with? What, what would you choose? Like, if you could have one label, one label that described who you were to other people and you got to awareness what people thought. What would you want that label to be? What would it be? Smart, wise, funny, not extremely needy. What would that be? Well, I ask that because we come in First uh, Timothy in chapter 6, verse 11 to an interesting label that Paul... So here's Paul. Paul is this, this senior apostle, church planter, just a godly man. And then he's writing to this, this young man, this young pastor named Timothy. And this is the label he puts. He says, but you man of God. And when I read that, I thought, wow. I mean, you know, wouldn't it be something to have somebody like the apostle Paul come up and address you as man of God or woman of God? Wouldn't it be kind of interesting if you left your jacket at church and you just labeled it man of God and somebody found it and they knew it was you? <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Like, oh, I know who that is. Like, and I say that because, you know, not, we're all going to play different roles in this life. Not everyone's going to be an elder in the church or a deacon or a leader or lead worship or teach a class or whatever, you know, but we can, we can all be people of God. We can all be men of God, women of God, and I hope and I pray that you aspire to this. That's what this series is all about. What, what Paul really does in this letter is, he says, there's like the nominal Christian life, there's the just getting by Christian life, and then there's the life of aspiration. The life of, I want to I do great things in Jesus Christ. I want to be a man of God. I want to be a woman of God. And our, our little graphic is this, this, this tree, and it's got little picture frames in there, and it's the idea that God is growing us up. He's making a family tree, a family of us, and God's desire is that every one of us would aspire 
desire to true spiritual greatness, that we would, we would strive for it, that we would work for it, that we would want to be men and women of God. And so in this passage, as we're getting near the end of the book, Paul's starting to wrap some things up, summarize some stuff. And he has some instructions for people who want to be men and women of God. If that's you, then he's got some advice for you today. A couple of things. The first is, if you want to be a man or woman of God, you need to know when to run. You need to know when to flee. You need to know when to get out of a situation. Now, he's been talking about all sorts of sin in this book. He's talked about greed. He's talked about heresy. He's talked about sexual impurity. He's talked about gossip. He says, sometimes when it comes to sin, you just got to run, right? Don't hang out. Don't be there. You got to get out of there. My question for you today would be this. What do you need to run from? What sin is there in your life right now? And you've been playing with it. You've been messing around with it. You've kind of thought you could put your arm around it and control it, and you can't. What you need to do is you need to run. Maybe last week you were here, and you, you, know, you just have to admit, it hurts to say, but you love money. You love money. You hope nobody knows it, but in your heart, you know that you love money. Or maybe it's, maybe it's lust. Maybe it's gossip or anger or an addiction or selfishness or laziness or maybe, maybe you love cats and that's what it is, but just something, right? And, you gotta, and you're like, Paul's like going, listen, now, the thing you have to understand about sin is this. There's several different paths to get in sin. Um, like sometimes we, we sin because we foolishly pursue it. We see sin, we want that sin, and so we go for it. Sometimes we wander into sin. We talked about that last week when it comes to, um, when it comes to the love of money. Um, sometimes we wander into it. Be, by not purposely going toward God, we wander into sin. Sometimes it's a trap that the devil sets for us and we don't even know what we're in for. But repentance is when we stop moving in the direction of sin. We stop. We make a conscious decision to stop moving there and to change our direction and to move towards the Lord Jesus Christ. To run away from temptation and to run away from sin. Now I say that because sometimes people have this mental image of Christianity uh, as like, so here's, here's my life. I, uh, you know, the rest of the week I'm out there in the world. I got my job, I got school, uh, I got home, I got hobbies and stuff. And during the week, the world beats me up and turns me upside down and I'm not perfect and I sin and all that stuff. But I come to church on, on Sunday at 11 o'clock and I, and I add a little Jesus to my life. A little spring, sprinkle a little Jesus, sing, sing a couple songs and, you know, listen to a sermon that goes on and on. I take some notes, I get some brownie points with God, shake a few hands, add a little Jesus, go out. Now, if, if, my, if my week is really tough, then maybe on Tuesday, I'll open up my Bible and read and I'll add a little more Jesus to my life. This this is a problem, see, because Christianity is not adding Jesus to your life. When you feel like, like Christianity is adding Jesus, this is where sin and temptation become so, but it's so hard, Pastor. It's so hard to turn from sin. It's because you don't understand that the essence of Christianity is not, is not adding Jesus to your life, right? It's not what it is. It's starting over, completely over. It's where Jesus makes you a brand new person from the inside out. He gives you a new heart. He doesn't just add himself to your heart. He gives you a new life. He doesn't just add himself to your life. He is 
your life. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. And he gives you a new attitude towards sin. You run from it. You just run from it. You don't mess around with it. So Paul says, Timothy, to, to Timothy says, run. Greed, run from it. Heresy, get away from it. Laziness, slander, run. My question is, what would God say to you today? What would the Apostle Paul, if he were here and preaching and walked up to you afterwards and he knew you, what would he say that you need to run from? Here's what I know. I don't know what it is, but I can tell you this. You need to identify what it is. What is it specifically that you need to run from? Ask God to reveal that to you. If you don't know what it is, ask your wife. She'll tell you. What do I run from? Ask the Holy Spirit to do his convicting thing. But I want to warn you. Don't you, you... You have to get away from this idea that you can just manage your sin. You know what I'm talking about? Some people are like, yeah, I know I got the sin. I know I got the sin in my life and it's a temptation and it's sin and it's wrong. But I think I can strong arm it. I think I can have it in my life and kind of manage it and keep it within some boundaries and, and I'll keep it secret and it won't take over my life, whatever that is, whether it's your greed or your lust or your addiction or whatever it is. And I think this is the, this is the deceptive nature of sin. Oh, it's no big deal. Oh, I'll control it. Let me tell you. I could, I could recount for you endless stories, endless stories of, of smart, of intelligent men and women who, who thought that they could manage their sin. Oh, I can manage it. I won't run from it. I'll keep it around because it's kind of comforting at times. But I'll manage it, my greed, my anger, whatever it is. And I can tell you story after story after story of people who tragically could not manage their sin and their sin managed them. Instead, Paul says, run. Don't play around, run, get away from it. So a person of God knows when to run, but a person of God also knows when to pursue. So it's not just, being a person of God isn't just what you get away from, it's what you move toward. And he gives us some some things to move toward now. This is not an exhaustive list of six things, put it on, memorize it, but it's an idea, I think, in general of what we run toward. So it's not just what we run away from, it's what we run toward. Here's some examples, pursue. So there's some things you go after. What are they? Things like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. He doesn't get into a big discussion about them. He just, you know, kind of tosses them out there. So what are these things? He tells us about righteousness. Righteousness and godliness, the next one, these kind of go together because they're kind of two different sides of the same coin. Righteousness is all about outward. It's just to do, do the right thing is what righteousness means. It's outward behavior. It means that a person of God always strives to do the right thing. It's not complicated. They just do the right thing. Oh, I'm in a situation. There's this and there's this. There's what I wanted there. No, it's simple. Just do the right thing. What's the right thing? Do that. In relationship to God, in relationship to people. In Ephesians 5, yeah, Paul says, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children of God. So that just means wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I just ask myself, what would God do? And I'll imitate him. When I'm at work, how would God do this work? Bible gives us all sorts of examples of how God would do his work. Just do that. Just do the right. It's hard. Do the right thing. It's difficult. It's complicated. Whatever. Do the right thing. When you're driving down the road, just how would God drive down E Street today? What would he do? Would he really go 30 miles an hour? What would he do? Just do what God would do. If you're, if you're young, if you're dating, just ask yourself, how would Jesus Christ conduct himself in this dating relationship? How would he treat himself? How would he you know, pursue that tonight? If you're married, how would Jesus pursue that? What would he do? If you're making decisions, if you're dealing with anger, if you're in a discussion, righteousness, do the right thing. 
That's worth pursuing. Now that's worth going after. There's godliness. Godliness is reverential, a reverential attitude. Godliness is an inward attitude. So here's what, just logically for me, I would think that Paul would start with godliness and then mention righteousness. Does that make sense? Like he would say, let's start with your motivation and then let's work towards, your, towards what you do. I kind of love the fact that he mixes it up and he talks about do the right thing first. In other words, it's kind of what he's saying is, it doesn't matter how you feel about it, still do the right thing. It doesn't matter what your motivation is. You just always do, always do the right thing. Don't go, well, I'll do it when I feel like it. I'll do it when it feels, no, always do the right thing. But in the process, work on your attitude. When he, a reverential attitude means that you, you, you love Jesus Christ so much. You so appreciate what he's done for you that your desire is to honor him in any and every situation. And, and that, that reverential attitude impacts, it dictates the actions uh, and your words and your decisions. And sometimes people say, well, I don't, I'm not sure what that means, how to, be, how to be godly. Very simple. First, you need to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to know him personally. You meet Jesus and then you get to know Jesus. You get into his word. You read about his life. You, you study the gospels and then you just, you follow him. So you meet him, you give your life to him and you get to know him. We call that theology and you follow him. It's not real complicated. Godliness, faith. So here's another one. When we talk about faith, um, I'm defining it this way. A confident trust in God for everything. We've been talking about faith a lot in this series. And it's important because another word for faith in the Greek is the word trust. And when we talk about faith or trust, the reason that this is so important is because your trust in God or your lack of trust in God will always determine the quality of your life, um, the amount of contentment that you have. We talked about that last week, joy and stress. One writer put it this way, our anxiety reveals a lack of trust in God and in his promises. And, and in other words, what he's saying is this, whenever I find myself anxious and find myself worried, that's usually a red flag that there's some area in my life where I'm not trusting God right now. I don't have faith in him. And he talks about the promises of God. So the Bible is full of promises that God has made to you. It's pretty gracious uh, thing of God to do, isn't it? Like the God of all creation make, made promises to you and to me. Like, why would he even feel the need to do that? Well, because he loves us and he, he cares about us and he wants us to trust in him. So he's made promises to us. Like the Bible says that uh, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are a dearly beloved child. That's a promise. Now, see, if you believe that promise, that's going to impact the quality of your life, isn't it? Because you're going to kind of walk through life and yeah, you know, if you got the boot on and you're walking through the parking lot and people are looking at you and you're like, I'm okay because God loves me, right? So I'm good. If somebody rejects you, you're okay because God loves you. But if you're not sure God loves you, can you imagine like if you're going through a trial, if you're going through a difficult situation, you might start to think to yourself, is God mad at me? Is God ticked off? Does God want to punish me? Is God in a bad mood? If you don't believe the promise that God loves you. God's made us a promise that if we'll place our faith in Christ, he'll save us by grace. Grace is a gift from God. When God says he'll save you by grace, what he means is this. Jesus Christ did the full work on the cross and there's nothing that you can add to your salvation. There's no work that you can do. Now, if you believe that, that's a great promise of God. But if you don't believe God's promise, what do you do? 
Well, you start to do things like, well, I better, I better you know, give a certain amount and do certain things because that way God will approve me and let me into heaven. I better act a certain way and do certain things, maybe do certain rituals, right? Maybe uh, get involved in certain religious um, activities so I can earn God's trust. And you start thinking of God as someone that you've got to win over. Why? Because you don't trust the promises of God. If you don't believe God's promise that when you're in Christ, he's active and, and working and he's going to work everything for your good, right? If you don't believe that, then when things are going tough, you're going to start to question where you stand with God. See, here's a great thing to do in your life. When you're reading the Bible and, and when God makes a promise, take that promise and act on it. Because when you act on the promises of God, then you get to see God keep his promises. And when you get to see God keep his promises, it makes you a little bit stronger. So that next time you're going through a trial or a decision or whatever, you're a little bit stronger to follow God and to go forward and to practice faith. Well, that's a, a third thing. Here's a fourth thing that he says we should pursue in life, and that's love. We should be people who are kind and generous and gracious and, and devoted to God and to the people around us. Now, here's why I think this is interesting. We live, and I'm finding this to be more and more true all the time. We live in a world that is so devoid of genuine Christ-like love that, that when you love most people, they don't know how to respond to that. Have you noticed that? Like if you just walk up, if you walk up to somebody and give them a big hug, have you ever been like, they're like, whoa, you know, are you a pervert? What are you, what are you up to? What do you want? Like what, what's going on? Like my wife, my wife is a teacher. So we have a lot of these discussions. If for those of you who are teachers, you know, there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of union stuff going on. You got to be careful how you interact with your kids, right? You got to be careful what you say to them. And, and, and there's a lot of, and there's a lot of discouragement now from teachers having physical contact with their students, right? I mean, because we understand why some of that's out there. But for my wife and I, we've had to sit down and talk about this. Like, what does this mean? My wife, who teaches kindergarten this year, she says, you know, um, a lot of my kids, she says, when they come in the morning, the, the thing they need more than anything else from their teacher is a hug. They need, and they want a hug. But there's a lot of pressure not to hug those kids, not to touch those kids. So my wife and I, we've had to talk about it, you know. And, and I've told her, I've been like, you know, there's, there's worse things to get fired over, right? Right? So you, if you want to hug those kids, you hug those kids. If you get fired, that's okay. Don't, you, you'll have my support. I'll be on your side. But you know what? We don't, we don't back off. Who would have thought that there would come a day when just loving people would be this radical, almost dangerous thing to do? But we don't do that in our world. We love people, whatever it takes, whatever it means. Whatever your job, you love people, regardless of, of what it might cost you. We love God. We love people. We serve them. We befriend them. We're generous to them. If they need a hug, we give them a hug. If they're suspicious, well, they'll get over it, you know? We listen to them. We forgive them. We love people. And then here's another one. We endure. Now, this is an interesting one to me. He says we, en we endure. <sighs> what does our culture know anymore of endurance, of patient awaiting, of perseverance, of steadfastness? Ours is a culture that says, if you like it, go for it. If you don't like it, get rid of it, right? So, but I think part of what we learn in the Bible is if you want to build um, a godly character, it takes, it takes perseverance. It takes 
endurance, right? It means like, you're not like, I'm going to read my Bible every day for a whole day, right? And then, oh, that was too, that was too hard. And I'll, I'll start again a month later. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, you know, you, you hear a sermon on generosity. I'm going to be generous. And you're generous for like 20 minutes. And then you go back to your old one. And you're like, but at least I did it for 20 minutes, you know? And I feel, I feel a little bit good about that. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engage in disciplined prayer for my friends and family. Every morning I'm going to pray for them. And you do that for like two days, and then you don't, and then you do, and then you don't. And then you do, or I'm going to love this person no matter, I'm going to love them and you love them until they're not lovable and then you don't love them until they're nice again and you start again. And here's the problem, that doesn't build godly character. Starting, stopping, starting, stopping, doing when it's easy, not doing it when it's hard will not change your character. It will not change you, it will not grow you. Now, I mean, as a pastor, I do a fair amount of counseling. I don't do a lot of counseling. Most people never come back to me a second time. And here, you know, part of the reason is we have conversations like this. Like somebody will come and we'll be talking about, oh, I did this thing. I did this stupid thing I'm doing. You know, a lot of counseling just like I did this. I said this. I went there or whatever. I made a mess of things. What do I do? How do I fix it? Here's what people tell me a lot. I hear this. But I, I had good intentions. You know, before I cheated on my wife, before I stole from where I work, before I got on the, porn on the internet, but I had good intentions. And usually my response is like, well, that's great, right? But you know that's, not, right? But you, having good intentions to love your wife is not loving your wife, right? You know that, right? It's not the same. It's not actually loving your wife. Well, I had good intentions. Great, but that's not loving your wife. Well, I, I, you know, I really wanted to serve my kids. That's great, but that's not serving your kids. Well, my intention was to influence my workplace for Christ. Again, my response is, oh, great, but you didn't actually, you didn't do it. But I meant to, but you didn't. But I intended to, but you didn't, all right? You see, there's a, there's a difference there. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says if you're married, love your spouse. Period. Right? If you've got kids, raise them up in the admonition of the Lord. Right? Even when it's hard. <laughs> Even when it's not easy. If you have a job... Do your work as unto the Lord, even when it's hard. Read your Bible. Be a man of prayer, a woman of prayer. Be thankful. I, lo- I thought a lot about this this week, this whole like, be- who would think that you'd have to have endurance in being thankful? I don't know many people who will say to me, I'm just thankful 24 hours a day for every single thing that comes into my life and I don't even have to think. Most of us would have to admit, right, that when it comes to being thankful and grateful, we kind of got to work at it. Sometimes we almost get bored with it. Uh, there's so many things to thank God for. If I thank God for everything, I'll never be done, right? I'll never be done thanking God for things, right? Like, but can you imagine the impact that that would have on your, on your character if you were truly thankful in all things? If you were generous? So I told you, you know, I went to my doctor. You got stress fractures. We're going to put you in a boot. It's going to slow you down. It's going to help you. I thought about it this week because wearing the boot is like, well, actually, my thought was yesterday, I'm like, guy, this is really involving a lot of endurance on my part. Uh, And then I realized, like, I have to wear it for six weeks, and I've been wearing it for 
eight days today, <laughs> like eight days. I felt like, really, it's only been eight days? It, it almost feels like it's got to be five weeks, right? And I was thinking to my, like the last few days, I'm like, I'm feeling better. I feel like it's, you know, yesterday I was in my house. I'm looking out the window. There's like people running by my house. They're running by my house. They're looking at me. They're like, yeah, you know, at least it seems like that. And I'm like, oh, I could take this thing off. I could go for a quick run. It occurred to me, you know, like for all the gains I've had in eight days, which I feel like I've had gains, I could just take this thing off and in one stupid act, I could undo all the good that's been done in the healing over the last eight days. Now, if I, you know, this afternoon just decide it's sunny and I feel good and I take this boot off and I go for an eight-mile run, it's like, you know, and I'm in a lot of pain when I'm done, will God forgive me for that? Yes. My wife told me she's not sure she will, but God will forgive me, right? But will that protect, will God protect me from physical damage to my body? Well, no. Why? Because God's smarter than that. He loves me more than that. No, he's going to let me pay for the stupid thing I've done. Now, here's why I mention that. Because I see a lot of people do that with their marriages. I've seen people who have invested, invested 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I'm going to tell you what. I'm getting really tired of this story that I hear over and over again. I worked, I worked, I worked. And then I got kind of tired of it. And I went and did something really, really stupid just ridiculous. And I did it again, and I did it again, and then I tried not to do it for a while, and then I did it again, and I can't understand what happened with this addiction, with my anger, with this gossip. You understand that you can do things in what, in in 15 minutes, you could undo years and years and years and years of blessings, can't you? You know that's true. We've seen that happen again and again. This is why God says, endure don't just escape. When things are tough, don't just escape. Like if I decided, I don't like my doctor's plan. Being in a boot is a dumb plan. I don't like it. I'm going to go get another doctor. I'm going to find another doctor who has a better plan, right? Will that really solve my problem? No. But people do this all the time. I'm going to go get a new, I'm going to get a new church. I'm going to get a new friendship. I'm going to get a new marriage, right? See, oftentimes the problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. We lack endurance. We lack devotion. Ah, well, well, we'll move on. Um, gentleness. I could, build, I could build endurance, couldn't I, by just not, I'll just keep talking about it for a while. Anyways, um, gentleness, all right? <laughs> it's gentleness, kindness. Now, some, some commentators have noted this, that all the stuff Paul's been talking about kind of, kind of all wraps up in gentleness, in this Christ-like character, um, that all the stuff Paul's talking about, in the end, what Paul's saying is this. Listen, when it comes to your world, when it comes to living for Christ and the people around you, your goal is not, your goal is not to judge them. Your goal is not to be harsh with them. Your goal is not to put them down, beat them down, put them in your place. Your goal is to build up people spiritually. That's your goal. Your goal is to encourage people to follow Jesus Christ. Your goal is to see other, other people grow and to love them and, and to endure. My question for you is this. What do you need to flee from and what do you need to pursue? Is it righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness? You might want to just circle one of those. What's one right now that the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you and you're like, I gotta go, I need to work on this thing. I need to actually not wait for it to hit me between the eyes. I need to pursue it. I need to go for it. And then here's the third thing he says about a man of God or a woman of God. And that is sometimes for men and women of God, they flee, sometimes they pursue, and sometimes they fight. And we've talked about this before. Notice what he says. Fight 
the good fight. Now, some Christians just read the first word and they stop there, fight. Like some Christians are kind of like that. Don't, they're just always walking around for a good fight. I want to fight with you. I want to fight theology and fight doctrine and fight about the music and all that. That's not what he says. He says, fight the, the what? The good fight, the fight of the faith. All right? So when you decide to openly glorify God, so let me just tell you what I mean here. Some of you have made the decision, I hope all of you have made the decision at some point in your life to place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Now, that is an awesome thing to do. I hope all of you have done that, but that's not what this is about, all right? Fighting the good faith, openly glorifying God, is because you can, you can get your fire insurance and not actually be glorifying God. Maybe, maybe hopefully you've gone to a point where you got baptized and you, you, know, you wanted everyone to know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's great, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, have you come to the point in your life where you have decided the purpose of my life is to shine the glory of God everywhere that I go? I'm going to glorify God. Can you see how that's a little bit different than just getting into heaven? No, while I'm here on this earth, I'm going to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that when you make that decision, that decision to openly glorify Christ above everything else, you are going to be in for a fight. All right? Because our culture doesn't like that. I don't know if you notice that. Our culture doesn't like people who openly glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Go figure. That the devil's going to oppose you. Your own flesh is going to oppose you. Ungodly people are going to oppose you. Even nominal Christians are, who don't want you to rock the boat, right? They're like, oh, if you start openly glorifying God, if you're like standing on your chair and worshiping God, then I'm going to feel guilty if I'm sitting down. Christians don't, sometimes don't like it when you rock the boat and you openly glorify God. But here's the deal. If you, don't, if you don't decide to just openly glorify God and fight that good fight, then this world will keep you living a nominal, sit in your chair, say nothing, do nothing, influence nobody kind of life. And the devil would love nothing more if you're a Christian than just to get you to be quiet and stay in your seat. Now, he says we've got to fight. We've got to fight if we're going to openly glorify God. And it's important for us to remember who we're fighting, okay? Who we, are we fighting? Are we fighting the atheists? Are we fighting a, a political party? Are we fighting, uh, you know, who are we fighting? He tells us, no, in Ephesians 6, our struggle, our fight is not against flesh. It's not against blood, all right? So it's not against, it's not against people. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. It's, it's higher than it, against rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world. He's talking about spiritual, the spiritual realm, the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. And he says, you've got to fight, but you're not fighting, you're not fighting other people. You're not fighting other organizations, all right? Like they may be the front for it, but what you're fighting is a spiritual battle. You fight the real enemy because there's too much on the line. Now, sometimes people will tell me, you know, I, I've told you last week, sometimes people tell me, I'm not a theologian, I just love Jesus. And we talked about how we're, that's kind of a ridiculous statement because theology is nothing more than your, it's Jesus. Theology is a study of God or knowing God, right? When I say, I told you, all of you are theologians. It's just some of you are good theologians and some of you are not. Theology is just what you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way, sometimes people say, you know, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a fighter, I'm a lover. You know, I just, that's who I am. But you, you know it's true that, that you'll always have to fight for the things you love. There are just going to be times, like for those of you Men who are married, right? If you really love your wife, you'll defend your wife. 
You'll defend her if, if she's threatened. You'll defend her because you, you love her. For those of you who are parents, I love, like I, sometimes I meet parents and, and parents defend their kids if they love their kids. I meet parents sometimes, sweet, you know, mothers, nice mothers, sweet mothers, kind mothers, you know. Oh, you wouldn't think they'd hurt a fly, but you mess with their kids and you better watch out because the claws come out, right? Why? Because you defend what you love. That's what you do. A person who loves their church defends their church. A person who loves their integrity defends their integrity. A person who loves the gospel defends the gospel, but there's nothing easy about fighting right? When you fight, sometimes you're going to get knocked down, but you get back up. If your feelings get hurt, you're going to brush yourself off and get back in the fight. If you make a tactical error, if you make a mistake, if you sin, you just confess and you get up and you get back in the fight. If you have a bad day, you, you get in the fight anyways, because there's some things that are worth fighting for, and it would be wrong not to. It'd be wrong. In verse 12, he goes on, he says this, take hold He's really getting down to it for us now. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Do you realize that you have eternal life not because you were so bright that you made that decision, but God called you. God called you. So he says, take hold of that. When you, were, when you made your good confession, there was a time in your life when you confessed the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of many witnesses. It wasn't private. You did it publicly. He says, take hold of it. And, and, and fight for it in verse 13. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate. Now this is kind of a, every, when I read this, I'm like, well, this is interesting. Like I get the whole run from sin and move towards righteousness. And what's this whole confession before Pontius Pilate thing about, right? He's, he's talking and he says, of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the, made the good confession. And then he goes on, he says, and I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what he says. Jesus is coming back, right? Have you thought about that lately? Like Jesus is coming back and it will not be like this forever. This world, this cesspool, this garbage. Thank God it won't be like this forever because Jesus is coming back. Sometimes people want to know when, <laughs> When is Jesus coming back? Like, when can, I, when can I relax? When is the finish line? In fact, I've noticed people do interesting things with the finish line. Like, when can I, I've actually had people, like, I've never had anybody tell me, like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to serve Jesus anymore. But I have people, like, I've had people tell me this. I'll, like, I'll go to somebody in the church and say, we need somebody to help out in this ministry or this ministry. Would you be willing to help? And I've actually held I've had people tell me, you know what? I worked in kids' church. I worked in the nursery. I did my time, buddy. I was in prison. I, you know, I did it for five years. I worked in, I worked in youth ministry. I worked in ministry, women's ministries. I did it. I did my time, and I'm done. I served. Let the young people serve, right? What are you saying when you say that? You're saying, I'm, 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 I've crossed the line. I've finished. I've done my, I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back now. I'm done influencing. I'm done serving. I'm done sacrificing. Is that, where the, is that where the finish line is in this, in this life? Serve three years in kids' church? Who could ask more, right? And then you're, you're done. You're, you're good to go. Uh, you know, well, I, you know, the kids are grown up. They're gone. I'm, I've worked. I've retired. You know, in the last uh, in, uh, Saturday night, so I've said this. They're not here now, so I'll just brag about them for a minute. But on Saturday night, Shannon and Karen Essen were here. Yeah, I, he'll be mad when I finds out I talked about him. Like, so if you know Shannon Karen, he was a, he was a pilot for years. She was, a, she was a, um, an, an accountant. 
And uh, they worked hard, their whole life served, worked in the church, served, and then he retired a few years back. And when he retired, he, he did what a lot of people did. When I retire, then I'll really have time to serve God. Have you, you ever thought that? When I'm retired, I'll, then I'll really have time to serve God. So they retired. What did they do when they retired? They packed up all of their stuff and they moved to the Philippines. For a, Actually, they moved there for one year to serve at a school, at a missionary school. So I was like, wow, that's so cool that they did that. And they gave their house to be used by somebody else and they went there. And then they got asked, so they served a second year. And then when they were done serving two years, when most people done like, I've worked hard my whole life and I want to I go home and relax. What did they do? They got asked to go to Micronesia for a year for him to fly. And it was a tough tough ministry year for them, but they went. And now they've come back. And what are they doing? They're getting involved in ministry. And he's, he's getting involved in teaching. And she's getting involved in serving. Why? Because they would tell you that the finish line is when, you, when you're dead, right? It's not like, they're, not like, when do you get to retire? When you close your eyes and you're done breathing, right? That, when you open your eyes and you're looking at Jesus face to face, that's when you get to retire. That's when you get to, you, you don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to pursue anymore. I love what he says here. He says, he says Christ Jesus, who I'll testify before Pontius Pilate. Let me tell you what he's saying here. He's saying, think about this for a minute. For 33 years, Jesus is living and sacrificing and forgiving and teaching and traveling and he's hungry and he's tired and he's working and working, right? 33 years, he's been, he's been ministering in different ways. At the end of three really intensive years, he's, he's been arrested and he's standing before Pontius Pilate. This is so, so important. And Pilate says to him, who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? Now think about it. Jesus, had, you know, he could have been thinking, oh, for Pete's sake, for 33 years I've been on this dust bowl. And, you know, for three years I have been saying this every day and serving. And, but don't you think, like, Jesus could have been thinking, like, I've worked so hard. I just want to relax. I just, I'd love to go have a week on the Sea of Galilee, you know? Like, when Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, when he stood up and said, I have to confess, I am the king. I am the Lord of lords. He knew when he said that, it was just going to be more trouble. You think Jesus could have been thinking, haven't I had enough trouble? Haven't I had enough, you know, trial and, and opposition? And now I'm going to say this and it's going to get even worse. They're going to spit on me. They're going to beat me. There's a crown of thorns. There's marching up the hill. There's a crucifixion. When did Jesus stop the good confession fighting the fight? He fought it when he was dead. When, he, when they crucified him on the cross, right? And then he got all the fun stuff after that, the rising from the dead, the appearing to people, the ascending to heaven. But he never stopped confessing who he was. I think there's a message for us, right? If you confess that Jesus is your God and you confess him every day of your life, right? Because this is a relationship. This, Christianity is not a one time I confess Jesus and now I just go on my way right? A relationship with Jesus is every day I confess Jesus. Every day in my words, in my life, in my actions, I confess, I confess, I confess, and I never stop confessing, and it will cost you. 
just like it cost him. And people will mock you and people will reject you and it might cost you a few GPA points because your teacher didn't like your paper or your stand on something. It might cost you a job. It might cost you a promotion. But you never stop confessing. You never hide your light. You don't try to fit in. You, you go ahead and stand out. You're the Jesus freak. It's okay. You run from sin. You endure. You proclaim because Christianity is an everyday relationship an everyday confession. And if your life is not a confession every day, if it's not a confession, I just I would just think that you might want to do some soul searching. Now, I'm not questioning your salvation, but I'm just telling you this. If your life is not an everyday confession of the Lord Jesus Christ in what you say and what you do, then I I would just it might it might behoove you to go to a private place to get on your knees and to take this to God. Because when a heart has been invaded by the love and the grace of God, that heart is changed. You cannot shut that heart up. And I'm not saying that heart is perfect. Or, or doesn't ever sin because we know that's not true, but it's a heart that's o- overwhelmed that it wants to proclaim Jesus everywhere it goes. That kind of takes us to the fourth thing about a man or woman of God. A man, not just, a, not just somebody who's you know, gone into the waters of baptism and taken communion, but a person, a man or woman of God, they want to honor God in everything they do. This is how he wraps it up for us. God, the blessed and only ruler. He is the only ruler. He has jurisdiction over all of creation. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the king of all powers, all political leaders, every boss, everyone with authority. He has prominence and preeminence over all jurisdiction. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. The word Lord is not just a title, but it's also a name for God. In the Old Testament, the Jews three times a day would quote Deuteronomy 6.4. They would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one, he is Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus is proclaimed as Lord. The word Lord is used over 7,000 times in the New Testament. It's kind of an important word. It's a big deal. Jesus is Lord. He is the, the question becomes, he is the one who is in charge. Who's, who do you submit to? Who do you respect? Who do you follow? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? He goes on, he says, who alone is immortal? That means he is eternal. That means he has eternal life and he can give eternal life. Where does your eternal life come from? It comes from the king. It comes from Jesus Christ. He says, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be, notice this, to him be what? Honor. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. No one has seen him in this lifetime. No one can see him, not with these eyes. He's too perfect, too holy, too beautiful for us to gaze upon him. Men and women throughout history have seen the glory, the shining, the reflection of God, but they cannot look on God with these eyes. Now, think about this. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. We can see God in creation and through things and kind of the glory of God, but we cannot see God face to face. But there's going to come a day when we see him face to face. And I thought about that. Think about all the stuff we see with our eyes right now. Think about the, the, the garbage and the injustice and, and the smut and the sin and the hate and the things that we see with our eyes. Now imagine this. Someday you're going to close your eyes. And when you open your eyes, you're going to be looking into the face of your Savior. Can you even imagine what that's going to be like to look in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you imagine all the, all the doubts and the questions and the concern that will just fade away in a moment when you look in those eyes? 
Can you imagine the depth of love that you will see? I try to imagine the look on my Savior's face when I see him, when you see him. Do you think in that moment when you look in his eyes and he looks at you and, and even without a word, all the love of God is suddenly just conveyed to you in a way that will just change everything for you? Can, can you imagine that there will be a moment where you think to yourself, you know, I wish I hadn't, uh, I wish I hadn't worked so hard to honor God. I wish I hadn't sacrificed so much and gave so much and worked so much and, and, and you know, openly, publicly confessed Jesus Christ so much. I wish I had kind of relaxed a little bit and retired spiritually a little bit early and said no to, no, of course not. When you look in the eyes of your Lord, you're going to say every sacrifice, every confession, every, everything it cost me was absolutely worth it. Every honor I gave the Lord Jesus Christ was worth it. See, if you truly believe that Jesus is Lord, then you will be a person who is Christ-absorbed, Christ-obsessed. The, the thing that will drive you in every situation is not what, what's in it for me. What will drive every situation for you is that the king of all creation loves me. He made me. He died for me. I'm a stupid sinner, and he still loves me. I made mistakes, and he still forgave me. That's how much he loves me. I'm forgiven. I've been set free. I'm going to heaven. Praise God. And now I just want to be, I want to honor him. I'm obsessed with him. I love him, and I'm free to have a life that honors him and confesses him. This is, the, this is our future. This is the glory of God that we will experience and live in forever. And I, and I believe that the more that we grab hold of that, the more that transforms everything in our life. Our joys, our troubles, our sorrows, our challenges, everything. Well, next week we're going to come together and we're going to wrap up this amazing book. And, but I'm going to ask Pastor Ken if he will come up and he's going he's to pray for us.